Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, the son of the free woman through promise. Now this is an allegory. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in travail. For the children of the desolate one are many more than the children of her that is married. Now we, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brethren, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This allegory here of Hagar and Sarah is written to persuade us, along with the Galatians, not to follow the Judaizers and Hagar into slavery, but to follow Sarah and Paul and Isaac into freedom. And so I want to begin this morning with a definition of freedom. And then we'll look at the allegory to see how this allegory teaches us to attain the freedom. Here's my definition of of freedom. Full freedom is what you have when you lack no opportunity, no ability, and no desire to do what will make you happiest in a thousand years. In order to be free in the fullest sense, you have to have an opportunity, the ability, and the desire to do what will make you happiest in a thousand years. Or to put it another way, there are four kinds of freedom, or four steps on the way to full freedom. There is freedom of opportunity to do what you can do. There is freedom of ability to do what you want or desire to do. And there is freedom of desire to do what will make you happy forever. Let's uh, use skydiving as an illustration of these four kinds of freedom. Suppose that you are going to the uh, Twin Cities airport on uh, Hiawatha Avenue to do your first jump. And you hit a pothole in the road, swerve, have a blowout, run into a telephone pole, toll your car, and uh, lose the freedom of opportunity. You no longer have the opportunity. You can't even be there when the plane takes off. 
You just have to sit there and miss the opportunity while you wait for the tow truck. So you've lost one kind of freedom. But suppose that uh, you miss the pothole and you make it to the airport and the plane is there ready to go and uh, you wake up to the fact that you don't know the first thing about jumping. You haven't studied. You don't anymore know how to put on a parachute, let alone how to work it. You don't have the ability to jump or skydive. And so you're in bondage to a lack of know-how. Suppose, though, that you make it to the airport, no problem. The opportunity's there and you avail yourself of it. You have the ability. You've been to school. Bruce Case has given you some pointers, maybe. And uh, you get on that plane and you take off and about the height of the IDS tower, you look out the window and all desire vanishes. <laughs> Nothing but fear. This is crazy. Bruce is crazy. You don't jump out of airplanes. Desire is gone. And the freedom of desire is absent. Now, there's something peculiar about this third kind of freedom, freedom of desire. You can go ahead and jump, probably, provided that there's some other dynamics at work, namely a fear of being humiliated by your instructor. Or maybe your girlfriend is alone. So you got competing desires. And maybe the desire not to be humiliated is so strong, you jump. Is that a free act? Well, in one sense, of course it is. But in another sense, we wouldn't call that fully free. You're acting under tremendous external pressures, constraining you. You don't want to jump, but you're feeling constrained and pushed to jump. So you, you jump. There are a lot of professing Christians who try to obey Jesus like that, aren't there? They don't really delight to do his will. Their heartbeat isn't the heartbeat of the Savior, but for some reason... Social pressures, fear of hell, desire to impress for the sake of the kids. They start to form their lives outwardly, religiously, morally. But as Jesus said, inside their heart is far away. It's way downtown or by the TV or on the beach or in the magazines or in the business or anywhere but where their outward behavior is. They're jumping out of the plane under constraint and they don't have the freedom of desire behind their actions, within their actions. But there's one last requirement. Suppose you make it to the airport. You got all the ability, all the know-how, you get on the plane and you take off and you look down on those teeny little silos and farm patches and you can't wait to jump. You really want to jump. This is what you want to do. And you jump. And while you are free falling, unbeknownst to you, 
your parachute malfunctions and it is not going to open. And you're enjoying the air. I suppose that's what you do. You'll never catch me. Are you free? Doing what you want to do? Loving it? Yes, in three important senses. You had the opportunity and took it. You got the ability and used it. You did exactly what you wanted to do. But no, not in the important fourth sense. You are in bondage to destruction. You're going to kill yourself. And you don't know it yet. There are a lot of Christians who envy the world foolishly. A lot of young people look around on their peers and envy their so-called freedom. It's really silly to envy those who pitch themselves out the window of sin and enjoy the exhilaration of free-fall sex, free-fall drugs, free-fall greed and luxury, you name it. It's foolish to envy those people. They're going to crash. They are in bondage to destruction, whether they know it or not. And so you need four things to be fully free. You need an opportunity. You need ability. You need desire. And you need to do what will make you happy in a thousand years. Which means that Christians, true Christians, are the freest people in the world. And nobody else is free but Christians in the full sense. And Paul is writing this book of Galatians, longing, fighting with all his might to expose the Judaizers as offering one thing, slavery. And he tells this allegory to try to help us see that freedom is not icing on the cake of Christianity. Freedom in Christ is Christianity. It's a matter of eternity. And so I want us to look at this allegory now and see if we can hear Paul's direction for us how to get there, how to enjoy the freedom that we all want. Doing what you want to do and not regretting it in a thousand years. Verse 21, Paul simply says that those who are turning back to the law, going after the Judaizers, turning back to the law as a job description by which we try to earn wages from God, he says to them, listen now, I'll tell you what the law really says. Now, I want you to catch something here. If something that I've said over the past months that we've been in Galatians has sounded anti-Semitic because I've been down on these Judaizers, I want you to notice that both Paul and I have only one complaint against the Judaizers. They're not Jewish enough. You see what Paul is doing here? He's not trying to replace the Jewish Bible with anything. He says, look, you people who try to be under the law, listen to the law. Become really thoroughgoing 
Jews who follow the Jewish Bible. Paul had nothing he wanted to teach except what was implied in the Jewish scriptures. And so he's a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. All the apostles were Jews. We ought to love being true spiritual Jews. We ought to believe the whole Jewish Bible cover to cover. And the problem with the Judaizers is that they weren't Jewish enough. They'd roll over in their graves if we told them that. But that's what Paul would say. Now, verses 22 to 23, here's the Old Testament backdrop, which he's then going to allegorize. Let's read these two verses and see what they mean. It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh and the son of the free woman through promise. Now, if you want to go back with me, I invite you to turn to Genesis 15, because I'm going to take you through the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac and show you what it means, as far as I can see, that one was born according to the flesh and one was born through promise. How that sets Paul up to make his point here in this passage. Let's start with Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6. Paul is, uh, not Paul, Abraham is lamenting the fact that he doesn't have any children of his own. In spite of the fact that God had promised him that he was going to have so many heirs that it would be a great nation. And he's saying, well, it looks like old Eliezer, the slave, is going to be my heir and I won't have any children. Verse 4, he says, God says, this man shall not be your heir. Your own son shall be your heir. In other words, God's intention was, in spite of the difficulty that Sarah and Abraham were having getting a child, he was going to act to get that promise fulfilled. They were going to have a son. But in Genesis 16, they have a lapse of faith, Sarah and Abraham. And you know what they do? Instead of depending on God's power, to enable them to have a son, they avail themselves of the human resources within them and around them to get a son. Hagar was the handmaid of Sarah, and Sarah comes up with this idea, well, I'll just give her to my husband, he'll get her pregnant, and then I'll, I'll let her son be my son, and we'll have an heir. It says in verse 15 of chapter 16, Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son to whom whom Hagar bore to him, Ishmael. In other words, when Paul says in Galatians 4.23 that this son Ishmael was born according to the flesh, he means he was a product of self-reliance. Agree with that? He was a product of what humans can produce without relying on God. That's what it means to be born according to the flesh. To be the kind of person who comes into being by no greater power than what humans can produce. Fourteen years later, Genesis 17, verse 16. God comes back, says to Abraham that Sarah is going to have a son in spite of their efforts and lack of faith. 
And God intends to fulfill his promise in a way that's going to remove all grounds for boasting from Sarah and Abraham. He's going to do it himself. And so these important words in verses 17 to 19 of Genesis 17. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, have a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live in thy sight, the son of Hagar. And God said, No, you won't have children of the flesh. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. God rejects what Abraham and Sarah and Hagar were able to produce by simply relying on human resources. And he rejects everything that humans achieve merely by relying on their own resources. But what does he do? Genesis 21, verse 1. This is a verse into which you can't pack more God. Listen to this. Genesis 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. That's a lot of God in a little verse. And the point is, Isaac was not a child of the flesh but a child of promise because he was the product of a divine intervention into human life. He was the product of more than humans can produce on their own. Therefore, he was a child of promise and a type or a pattern of all the people of God who were to come after him. And so Paul sums up in Galatians 4.23 The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman was born through promise. That's the facts. You don't need an allegory to see that. All you need to do is read the text. Now Paul begins to allegorize. He says in verse 24 that this is an allegory. I think what he means by that is that What he reads here in Genesis is an apt representation of something more than the literal meaning. It represents something more than the literal meaning. I don't think he means that the original meaning of Genesis had reference to Mount Sinai or Jerusalem, which he's going to talk about in a minute. I think what he means is this, that the truth implied in those texts about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac, that truth is the same truth which Paul sees happening at the foot of Mount Sinai, and it's the same truth that he sees happening in the Jerusalem of his day. And that's what we need to see. How is it that those events represent these later truths? Verse 24, he says that Hagar and Sarah are two covenants. And then he goes into Hagar, first of all. One of these covenants is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem 
for she is in slavery with her children. The key question we need to ask then is, how is Hagar and her interaction with, with Abraham and Sarah and her son like the covenant that happened at Mount Sinai, the giving of the law? And I see two similarities. First, Hagar gave birth to Ishmael in such a way that Paul says it was according to the flesh. That is, uh, the birth of Ishmael was simply the product of what people can produce by relying on themselves, their flesh. And that's exactly what happened when the law came at the foot of Mount Sinai. The people heard the law given, but instead of humbly saying to the Lord, Oh God, we are sinners. We cannot fulfill your law. We need your divine help. Come into us, oh God. Reshape us according to your character so that our desires conform to your desires and we obey from the heart. Help us, oh God. How do you say that? They said, in fact, according to Exodus 24, 3, very self-confidently, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But they had no heart to rely on God for the help to do them. And so like Hagar, they depended on their own resources. And like Hagar, they bore children unto slavery. They begat the son of legalism. And just like the child born of the flesh to Abraham and Hagar will not inherit, so the child of legalism will not inherit. Very close parallel between those two. Or to give the second similarity, which was really implied in the first, I think, both Hagar and Mount Sinai bear children unto slavery, the text says in verse 24, bearing children unto slavery. Since Ishmael was not accepted by God as an heir, he simply had the status of his mother who was a slave woman. And since what the people at Mount Sinai can produce on their own is not accepted by God, they are under the law in the sense that they are failing to please the Lord and will not inherit. And so if we go back to our definition at the beginning, they don't have the freedom of eternal life. They don't have the freedom of desire. Now, Paul brings the allegory up to date in verse 25. She, Hagar corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. You see what that is? It's a direct attack on the Judaizers. They're the ones who come from Jerusalem. Remember back in chapter 2, they came from James? Jerusalem is the hotbed of the Judaizing sect. It's the hotbed of legalism. And so Jerusalem is none other than a repetition of what happened at Mount Sinai, none other than what happened between Hagar and and Abraham, the product of self-reliance. And Paul is simply warning them, don't follow the Judaizers who come out of Jerusalem, the city that crucified Christ, the city that's stamped by the Pharisaic teaching. They'll make sons of Abraham out of you for sure. Ishmael, not Isaac. Then Paul turns away from Hagar to Sarah. He never mentions Sarah, but she's clearly implied here in verse 26. He skips right over the Abrahamic covenant, comes right up to date, has one thing to say. He says, but the Jerusalem above 
That's Sarah. She is our mother. Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. He contrasts the Jerusalem that is here in the present, there in Palestine, with the Jerusalem that is above in heaven. And I think what he means by the Jerusalem above can be seen best by looking at Colossians 3, 1 to 3. And I'll read it for you. Listen carefully. Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hid in Christ with God or with Christ in God. Now, I think if we let that text shed light back on the Jerusalem above here in Galatians 4, what we conclude is that the Jerusalem above is the abode of God where all the people of God who really trust in God have their names written on the citizens' registry. We're citizens of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. And out of that Jerusalem where God is comes the power to beget children of that Jerusalem. And the power that makes citizens of the new Jerusalem comes from heaven, doesn't come from human resources. And I think that's what he means when he says that Sarah represents this city because Sarah bore her child because of a divine sovereign intervention in her life, not because she figured out a way to get a, a concubine for her husband. And so Sarah, spiritually speaking, becomes the mother of all believers who rest not in themselves, but in the grace of God to work in them. And so Paul says in verse 28, now, brethren, like Isaac, we are children of promise. Our real life, not like Ishmael's, but like Isaac's, comes by a divine intervention. God works in us and makes us the citizens of a new Jerusalem. And I think that's confirmed by verse 29. Look at the contrast in verse 29. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. Did you see the shift in terminology from verse 23? In verse 23, the contrast is between a one born according to the flesh and one who is born through promise. And that phrase, through promise, is replaced in verse 29 by born according to the Spirit, which I take to mean that when Paul calls us Children of promise. In verse 28, he means we have become the children of God by virtue of a work of the Spirit in us, in fulfillment of God's promise. Just like Isaac was born by a work of the Spirit in fulfillment of a promise. That's the pattern set up for how you become a Christian. It is a supernatural work of God by his spirit in the heart. Verse 30 assures us that it is not the Ishmael types, but the Isaac types who are going to inherit. The son of the slave will not inherit with the son of the free. And then finally, in verse 31, he tells us that 
If we are Isaac types, we are in the category of the free woman, not in the category of the slave woman. And so that brings us back to where we were, namely freedom. Brings us back to our definition at the beginning. Freedom is what you have when there's an opportunity and you have the ability to do what you desire to do and not regret it in a thousand years. And I think that I've got common ground with everybody in this room on this score. If we were asked for a show of hands, I don't think anybody's hand would go up. Anybody don't want that freedom? Anybody doesn't want that? Freedom to have the opportunity, the ability to do what you love to do and not regret it in a thousand years. Anybody not want that? Everybody wants that freedom. And this text, therefore, is for you because this text tells you how not to get it and how to get it. So the question we want to ask is, why don't the Ishmael types have this freedom? And what does it mean to be an Isaac type? That's where the freedom is. Here's why I think the Ishmael, the Ishmael types aren't free. They lack, most fundamentally, the freedom of desire. That is, the desire to rest in God's promises. Instead, they are controlled by the desire to show their own resourcefulness. Ishmael types don't desire to be controlled by the Holy Spirit from outside, from heaven. They desire to control their lives and show their own resourcefulness. It's not that they don't desire God in some sense. They just want God on their own terms. Abraham and Hagar and Sarah wanted God's heir. They just were going to get him on their own terms. The Judaizers want God's blessings. They're just going to get them on their own legal terms. So the issue isn't, do you have some desire for distant blessing? Everybody wants that. The question is, will you go after it on God's terms? And Ishmael types won't. They rely on their own resources. And they don't desire to feel like little children who are dependent on mommy and daddy. They don't desire to feel like patients. How many who need a doctor? How many times have I talked to groups and they always respond, yeah, but isn't Christianity a crutch? Which just reveals what their desires are. They want to stand on their own two feet. That's why people don't become Christians. Because Christianity is a crutch. It is. People are always trying to get around that by answering that question so that it fits that evil desire. Are making a deep mistake. Ishmael types are people who went to Sunday school and are very glad that they graduated out of the class so that they don't have to sing Jesus loves me anymore. Because when you sing Jesus loves me, you say Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so, little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. That's for kids. I don't want that anymore. That's an Ishmael type. No desire to rely on God, and therefore, when it comes to saving faith, 
they don't have it, they can't have it, because that is saving faith. And therefore, they lack the freedom of eternal life, because eternal life is only given to those who forsake their own resources and depend on God. And there's a third kind of freedom that they lack. You know as well as I, don't you, that the most common use of the brain, the mind, is to justify the desires that already exist in the heart. You know that. The most common use of the mind is to justify intellectually desires that exist in the heart, which means that if the desires of the heart are profoundly perverted, thinking will go wrong, understanding will be askew, which means that they lose the freedom of know-how as well as the freedom of desire and eternal life. When they read the Bible... Their desire is so strong that God not be the sovereign lover, controller of their souls, but that they be able to act on their own resources, that they distort text after text to fit their desires and lose the ability to see what's right when it's right there in front of their faces. And Paul calls that the darkening of the understanding because of the hardness in their heart. But we, as Paul says in verse 28 here, brothers and sisters, are not like Ishmael. We are like Isaac, children of promise. We have been born from above, as John says, or born of the spirit, as Paul says here in this verse 29. The essence of Christianity is a miracle of new birth in your life. And oh, how Christianity has been watered down in a kind of do-it-yourself religion that anybody can do. They just set their mind to it. And Paul is teaching us here, if you try to, to beget a Christian lifestyle without a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you will beget Ishmael. Not Isaac. The hallmark of Ishmael types is that we have been converted, changed, transformed at the center of our lives. So our desires change. I am so tired of hearing Christianity sold as that which you must do contrary to your desires. See, that's an easy way to teach Christianity. Because it leaves you untransformed. You don't need a change. You just need to grit your teeth. Come to church. Read a Bible. Witness. And you, you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be changed. You don't need Almighty God to get a concubine like that. Beget Ishmael's in your life. The mark of an Ishmael is that I mean in Isaac, is that we have become like little children who just love to receive from our Heavenly Father what we need morally and physically. And we hate. Don't you hate the remaining tendencies in your life to depend on yourself and be proud? I hate them. And there are enough of them there to keep me really angry at myself. Lots of days. 
We ought to hate that. And if you hate it, it's a good sign that you are born of God. If you hate the remaining tendencies in your life to trust in yourself and to trust in those around you, perhaps, instead of trusting in God. Our delight, however, is in the law of God, and on his law we meditate day and night. Our choicest food is like Jesus to do the will of him who loved us and gave himself for us. That's what it means to be born of the Spirit. It says over, I can hardly wait to get to Galatians 5 and 6 because it just, I mean, it's all here, but there it gets really explicit. In, in 6.14 it says, circumcision and uncircumcision don't count for anything, but a new creation. That's Christianity. Christianity isn't putting a gloss of, of action that's sort of spruced up over the crud in your heart. It's junk in the crud, welcoming in Christ and having him, him form you from within so that your desires are shaped after his desires, as we saw last week. Last week, And then we're the freest people in the world. We got all the opportunity we need to do what's right, all the ability given by God, and he's shaping our desires so that we can do whatever we want to do and it will result in eternal life forever and ever. I'm so weary of a Christianity that is so contrary to desires instead of transforming desires. And I told the first hour that I'm really thinking hard about preaching the whole fall this year, from September to December, on Christian hedonism. And we'll put in a newspaper every Sunday, Christian hedonism, colon, and a new, and a new topic. What I mean by Christian hedonism is right here in this allegory. Namely, the essence of Christianity is to do what you want to do. Because you've been so changed by God that you want to do what God wants. Anything short of that transforming work isn't Christianity. It's Ishmael. Therefore, this is next week's text, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery.